and we're back onto the next model within the linguistics unit six so we move on to the hierarchy of ideas and this is the level of abstraction or specificity of our of our ideas so we can move our thinking and you can move your thinking in a range from abstract all the way to specific you can get very abstract or very specific so let's look at page 49 the hierarchy of ideas so this is a really easy way to learn language and a really easy way to learn the difference between abstract and specific so let me begin by giving you an example and we're going to talk about two different directions in which one could think or in which one could speak chunking down and that's a technical term it simply means getting more specific with your language it simply means moving more towards the specific and that's on the bottom left hand side of your diagram there on page 49 chunking up means moving more towards the abstract and that's on the upper left hand side of your diagram there on page 49 on the hierarchy of ideas now let's take an example and we'll use the example of cars so we're going to start right in the middle. We'll start right in the middle there where it says cars. And I'd like to use an example which could almost be a real life example. But let's say you called me on the phone and you got me on the phone and you said, Hey Debs, my car isn't working. Can you help me? Now, even if I knew something about cars, I'd probably want to ask some more questions about whether or not I could help you. I'd probably have to go through and ask you a series of questions which will probably get more details as detailed as I ask you those questions. So I'd have to chunk down. I'd have to move more towards the details. And if you look at the bottom of the right hand column, right down at the bottom, it says specific details sensor. It's specific and it brings a person out of trance. So you call me on the phone and say, OK, Debs, my car's not working. Now, if I knew about cars and I knew about all types of cars, I might ask you questions about the parts of the car. So I could say to you, well, what part of your car's not working? Is it the whole car? It's probably not the whole car. So what specifically is it in your car that's not working? And you might say, well, I don't know, but it seems to be around the wheels. Well... I'd say, well, what's wrong with the wheels? And you could say, well, you know, there's some sort of problem in the hubcaps. And I'd say to you, well, what's the problem with the hubcaps? And you'd say, well, I'm hearing a noise coming out of the hubcaps. And I'd say, oh, we'll take the hubcap in question off. What's going on? And you might take the hubcap off and get back to me and say, well, a couple of lug nuts are missing. Now there's a problem. There's something even that if you don't know much about cars that you could probably help the person with the problem of the car that isn't working. And if we get down to specifics and really discover that the lug nuts are missing, then there's something that we can do about that. And that's specific enough. Now let's say that I wasn't an expert on cars. So before I even ask you what was wrong with your car, I'd have to know what kind of car you had. And let's say I didn't know. So I'd either at that point, having chosen parts before I'd chosen classes and categories in this case, I'd move over to classes and categories and I'd say, well, what kind of car do you have? And you might say, mm, you know, there's different kind of cars like Mercedes Benz or E-Class. But let's say, let's say you have an E-Class. So 
Now, if I knew something about E-Class, I would say, well, what kind of an E-Class? And you might say, well, I have one of those old cabriolets. And if I knew cabriolets, I'd go, yeah, well, I do know cabriolets. So what's the problem? OK, so we have to get real specific to find out, actually, if I can help you. Did I know anything about the Mercedes-Benz E-Class? Did I know anything about the cabriolet? So in helping you or in asking you if I can help you, I need to get specific enough to know what the problem is in terms of the parts of the car or what kind of car it is and get real specific about that. Now let's say I wanted to chunk up but let's say I wanted to go in the opposite direction. So if I move a person towards the details we get more specific that brings a person out of trance. If I move someone in the opposite direction notice at the top of the page it says trance. And that has to do with the intuitor. We talk about centre and intuitors in Myers-Briggs categories. And we come to that in Master Practitioner. And that's a big picture person. And we may use the Milton model to get there, which we'll be covering shortly. Now, so let's say we're going to go at a higher level of abstraction from cars. And by the way, there are some questions on the left-hand side, which you could use to chunk either up or down. So let's look at the questions for chunking up because I think it'll make it a little bit easier. Chunking down was probably rather intuitive for you. And if it wasn't, there are questions on the left hand side on the bottom, which you can use. Chunking up is often not quite as intuitive for some people. So let me give you some questions that you can ask yourself. And that's right underneath the upward arrow on the left hand side. And the questions you can ask yourself is What is this an example of? Or you can ask yourself, for, for what purpose? Or you can ask yourself, what is your intention? So let's see what we get. Let's see what we get if we ask ourselves one of these three questions as we chunk up. So let's get back to cars. So what are cars an example of? And cars, of course, are an example of transportation. What is transportation an example of? And transportation is an example of movement. And what is movement an example of? And movement, and this is rather a large leap for those of you who are logical levels fans. And this is this is that rather large leap, a large leap to existence. Movement is an example of existence because in order to move, you must first exist. Now, notice no matter how many times you have to chunk up. And how many times you have to go up to a higher level of abstraction that eventually you end up in existence, where you end up in all that there is. And this is why the hierarchy of ideas is so useful. So you can begin to talk about an issue all the way from very specific to very abstract. And let me tell you why you'd want to do this. This is so, so important. If you know what kind of detail or what kind of level of detail that person you're communicating to needs, you'll be able to communicate exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. And by the way, this is also useful in negotiation because negotiation essentially is the process of gaining agreement. Now, what's the process of gaining agreement? Well, if you look at the issue of chunking up, on the upper left-hand side of the chart, it says chunking up. And right into that, it says agreement. Now, agreement is impossible if you're chunking down. That is, if you go more and more into details and distinctions, it becomes less and less possible to gain agreement. 
Now, I'm not saying it's totally impossible, but it becomes more, less and less possible as you chunk down, as people love to get stuck in the specifics. And it gets more and more possible as you chunk up. Here's an example from my own experience. I was working in a primary school and two boys had started yelling at each other in the lesson. They both had their chance to tell their version of what was going on to me and you guessed it. The problem was in the detail. So I chunked up with each boy separately. Now the boys wouldn't have understood the language of purpose or intention so I asked them what is this an example of? And I got them both to a point where they both agreed that they wanted peace in the classroom. So then I took them both down to how they would agree to do that. Which, by the way, was to listen to each other. So this works really well with children too, and I think these boys were only either eight or nine. So if we focus on the higher intention, then agreement becomes very easy. And the hierarchy of ideas is such a simple model that allows you to chunk up and down and allows you to be the master of whatever level you need to communicate. Now think about that for a moment. Master communicators of all time have been able to control the level of communication, whether they chunk up and get very abstract or whether chunking down and getting very, very specific. And we do cover how to specifically do this at master practitioner level, but if you can grasp the hierarchy of ideas concept, you can go ahead and do this when you need to use it anytime. Now in mediation, and this is right under those questions, you want to chunk up until you get to an agreement. You get some sort of agreement that you're going to chunk up to until you get to the level of a nominalisation. And let me explain. Nominalizations are a word we're going to run into when we get to the Milton model and the Meta model. And nominalisation is a word that you can't put in a wheelbarrow. It's a word that acts like a noun, but it's a word that you can't put in a wheelbarrow. So let me give you an example from our chart here on page 49, a car. Although it's rather big, a car you could put in a wheelbarrow if you got a crane and lifted the car up and put it in. You could put a Mercedes into a wheelbarrow and you could put an E-Class into a wheelbarrow. You could get a cabriolet, cabriolet into a wheelbarrow and all those wheels, doors, hubcaps and lug nuts, all of those could go into a wheelbarrow. But the minute we get above the level of car, we move into a level called transportation. And transportation is a noun, but it's not specific enough. We couldn't put transportation in a wheelbarrow. We certainly couldn't put movement in a wheelbarrow. And I suppose if a wheelbarrow was big enough, we could put all of existence in there. But typically we wouldn't. So in this case, we're moving into the level of transportation and movement, and there's certainly nominalizations. And that nominalization that's a noun is, it's a series which is a whole abstract concept. It's actually a verb that's been turned into a noun. So technically, what happens is, so for example, take the word communication. Communication is the process of communicating. Transportation is the process of transporting. Movement is a process of moving, moving, but we turn them into nouns so that we can talk about them. We can talk about them in terms of what they do. So in this sense, that word transportation is a normalisation. So when you're doing mediation or negotiation, you want to chunk up until you get to the highest level. 
nominalization and then which is kind of fun then you can only chunk back down as quickly as you can maintain agreement it's a very very simple technique to do very simple so let's talk a little bit about intuition and actually Carl Jung was one of the first one of the three fathers of psychology and he said that intuition was simply the ability to chunk up he didn't use the word chunk up but chunk up and find connections and relationships and then chunk back down and relate to them relate them to the current situation and it, it's rare by the way to find someone who's a large chunk or big picture person who sorts for information people who sort for information are usually smaller chunk people now if you've got a problem moving more towards the specific and let's say that people have accused you over the years of being too big picture or too flaky or too out there or too airheaded you could use these questions to assist you in chunking yourself down. You could use, for example, what are the examples of this or what specifically? You could use any meta model question once we've gone through those shortly. And as any one of these is really, really useful to assist you in chunking down. So what the hierarchy of ideas says is that we can talk about anything. We can talk about anything in life and we can talk about it from a level of abstraction like existence or movement or transportation all the way down to something very 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 specific now being very specific that's the structure of nitpicking which underneath the examples of classes and categories right underneath parts and all the way down under love nuts in the example of nitpicking the structure of nitpicking is chunking down and mismatching so a nitpicker is going to go more towards details and then they're going to mismatch the details that you've just given them i see this all the time on social media people get into huge arguments with each other over fine details and if you get someone who wants to chunk down and nitpick you you're better off to avoid that and chunk them back up to a higher level where you can still maintain agreement if they follow it okay so one more thought on this hierarchy of, of ideas and that's the structure of overwhelm and the structure of overwhelm usually means that the person that you're working with has too big a chunk usually the person is overwhelmed and you can hear it's so funny because you walk in and you talk to somebody and they say oh i'm totally overwhelmed and you say well what are you overwhelmed about and they say everything and you go everything you know yeah well what specifically can you make a list of what specifically you're overwhelmed about and usually most people can't get overwhelmed about more than 10 or 15 things so if you have somebody who's overwhelmed make a list you probably won't find more than 10 or 15 things at the most i had one client who came up with 20 who was overwhelmed and when they came with came up with those 20 different things they were overwhelmed about that you sh they could sort that out because they saw it in front of them usually the structure of overwhelm is that 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 that, that person thinks oh well i'm just overwhelmed about everything everything is getting to me so if you want to do that you just chunk them down so you say what specifically and that's a question on the lower left hand side what specifically are you overwhelmed about 
and when you chuck them back down you move them to, down to a point where they begin to see that they're not overwhelmed about anything they're not overwhelmed about everything and they're only overwhelmed about some things and that's some things specifically now here's what i'd like to suggest that you do with the hierarchy of ideas i'd like to suggest that over the next few days and weeks with the hierarchy of ideas i'd like to suggest that you take time to really exercise your brain and i bet you'll either chunk up best or that you'll either chunk down best now we come on to lateral chunking which we haven't talked about yet but let me talk about that for a moment and i think this will probably exercise your brain to lateral chunking so lateral chunking means going in a different direction we didn't talk about buses and boats and cars and planes and trains here on page 49, but both of those are lateral chunks to car. So let's just say that we were in some city, like the city of London, and we had a transportation problem. There's too many cars on the road. Sound familiar? So what are the solutions? Well, the solutions would be other forms of transportation. Buses, boats, cars, planes, trains. How do you get to there? Well, here's the way you do it. You actually chunk up one level and then you ask yourself, what are other examples of this? So let me see how this would work. Cars, for what purpose? Well, for the purpose of transportation of cars. So what are cars an example of? Cars are an example of transportation. Good. So what are other examples of transportation? And you could say buses, boats, planes, trains, skateboards, rollerblades, bicycles, etc. So... By chunking up one level, we're going more towards the abstract and then coming back down again. We can actually do a process called lateral chunking. Well, this is the specific technique for chunking laterally. You chunk up one level and then you ask yourself, what are other examples of this? And then you come back down to the same level. But you look at other examples. Now, this, I think, should exercise your brain. And we've given you now three ways to chunk. Chunking up, chunking down and chunking laterally. What I would suggest, and this is kind of fun, is that if you look at where it says in the upper right hand corner where it says big picture and you look at the bottom right hand corner, it says details. I think the interesting thing is there's more power in an abstract idea because an abstract idea actually controls a concrete idea. There's also more, more value in, a, in an abstract idea. And the, the fact, the greater the level of abstraction, the greater the level of value. And in many cases, and I'm sure you've heard it said, that the most profound ideas are the simplest ideas. Well, simplicity comes in being able to see the big picture. So here's an example. In the military, who handles... Who handles more things or who does more? Well, the private who's working. They're working and doing very specific stuff. Or the general, the general officer. Who oversees everything? Well, obviously it's the private. The general officer does almost, from the point of view of the private, the general officer does almost nothing. And it's mostly a conceptualised job. So as we move up the corporate ladder, both in business and in education, that's very similar. And if you feel you need more help learning how to get specific ask yourself what are examples of this using the example in the hierarchy of our ideas on the page 49 
chunk up in your mind, chunk back down and use other examples. Let's take another example, art. What's an example of that? Do you find you end up in the same place as existence when you're chunking up? Do you find that you end up in the same place as movement? Because even art has movements. These are all questions which as you go through the entire process of chunking up and chunking down, what you'll do is you'll exercise your brain and you'll gain greater chunking muscles. You'll actually exercise the chunking muscle of your brain and your brain will become stronger and you'll be able to leap logical levels laughingly. So the hierarchy of ideas, it's a fun thing. And when you get into training, we've got a great exercise on this. You'll love, it's a lot of practice. We'll do it when we're, when we're all together. And we'll practice chunking up and practice chunking down and, and also practice chunking laterally. And I think you'll enjoy it. It's one of the most fun things for me. And as you use it, you'll gain more and more capability. And soon they'll call you a master of language. So think. When we come to questioning, what is the question that I can ask, which by the very nature of the presuppositions of the question itself will cause the client to make the greatest amount of change by having to accept the presuppositions inherent in the question? And with that, think, what is the question that I can ask, which will help us get specific or help us get more abstract? And which one is going to help the client that you're with? So what is the question that I can ask? Always ask yourself, what is the question that I can ask? It's a really good thing to do. So we're going to move on now to the Milton model. And as we continue our series on language, now we've talked about the hierarchy of ideas. We've talked about presuppositions. So this is a pretty good basis for us to be begin now to talk about the Milton model. Now those masters of language of all time have been able to control the abstraction to the specificity of language and I think that's what this whole section is about, being able to control the level of language that you're speaking or that you're working with when you're working with someone. And what is that level of language? What is the level that you need to talk to them at? What level will produce the proper results, the kind of results that you want to produce? So, let's turn to page 50. Let's turn to page 50, which is the first page of the Milton Model pages. So, first of all, what is the Milton Model? Well, Bander and Grinder went off to study Virginia Satir originally. We're going to talk about the Meta Model later on. And they went originally to study Satir and they got the idea from Virginia because she could do spectacular work just by getting more specific. She would chunk down and get more specific and chunk right down and further down, chunking down. And if you get really, really specific, people's problems would disappear as if by magic. So they wrote a book, The Structure of Magic, Volumes 1 and 2. And primarily, in essence, what she was doing was simply getting more specific where... If someone said she hurt me, Virginia would say, how specifically? Then they went off to study Milton Erickson. And while Bandler, Bandler and Grinder went off to study Erickson, now imagine doing this and having in your mind, here's the, here's the idea, 
you've watched Virginia Satir and here's the idea that the way that you work with people is to be more specific. It's what to do. It's what to do to create that great change. And then imagine having that in your mind and going off and listening to Milton Erickson. Now, here's a guy who was so abstract and so hypnotic that Bandler and Grinder had to change their whole thinking. So they came up with the Milton model. And the Milton model is, of course, the opposite end of the full spectrum of getting specific, which is what the meta model is all about. Now, the Milton model actually has specific hypnotic language patterns. They're the language patterns that seem to produce trance in the person when you're talking to them. Now, the reason why they produce trance is because the client and listening to what you're saying needs to go in and needs to produce a trans -der derivational search or search at the unconscious level to create new associations and new ideas as to why or as to what the meaning of the word is that you're using. So hypnotic language patterns, all of what we call artfully vague or they're specifically vague. They're designed to produce a specific result in a specific area. And by giving you all 18 or 19 different categories of language patterns, the idea here is not necessarily that you would know the names of the categories, at least not at this point. You certainly don't need to memorise the names of the language patterns until you decide to become a trainer. But as a practitioner, simply being able to use the different types of language patterns is absolutely sufficient. So I want to go over these so that you've got an idea of what the names of the language patterns are and what kinds of words are in relation to that, and also give you some examples. Mil Milton model patterns are in use throughout all of society. There isn't one section of society that doesn't use them. And many pe I've heard many people say that they couldn't possibly use them in business, and yet people use them in business all the time. And you'll have the chance in the live practitioner trainings, well, we'll show you how to use them. We're simply going to learn how to use hypnotic language patterns in general. And I think that's the best place to start. Milton Erickson told a story once, once upon a time ago, when he began to do hypnosis. And he thought that the best thing to do was to write out all the ways he knew to induce trance. And so he said he started and he laid out all the different methods and techniques and specific processes for how you induce trance in a person. And he said as he began, he accumulated a number of pages and he got one page and began to get two pages and three pages. And when he completed all of this, he'd use the typewriter and type them all out. And when he'd done, he got 30 single spaced typewritten pages with very, very small margins. And he said this was his entire compendium of how you induce trance. He said, but as he learned how to be more artfully vague over the years, he's learned to utilize states of trance and hypnosis that other people hadn't been using. He said he became, began to cut down those pages and cut down to 30 pages and then 25 and then 20, then 15 and then 10 pages nine, eight pages, and seven, six, and five, three, and then two, and then one. 
And he said he cut it down to one page and then one paragraph and then one sentence. And then one time he was in Mexico and they asked him to induce trance in a woman and she didn't know English and he didn't know Spanish. And they indu induced trance in her with no words at all. So how did Ericsson induce trance in people and be so artfully vague? How to induce trance in ways without using language specifically? Well, Milton Modley's how. So let's look at number one. And a mind read is claiming to know the thoughts or feelings of another person without specifying the process by which you came to know the information. And I know that you're curious as to how that's possible. And it's a good thing to be curious. Now, I know that you're curious as a mind reader. Number two is loss performative. And loss performatives all value judgments, which may include an unspecified comparison to where the performer of the value judgment is left out. So we could say, as I mentioned before, it's a good thing to be curious. And that's a loss performative because we're not saying what it is that is a good thing to be curious. We're just making that statement. Number three is cause and effect and that's where it's implied that one thing causes another and that includes the attribution of cause outside the self and implied causes including cause and effect which is the verb to make if then statements. And as you end the word, because those are all examples of cause and effect. Number four, complex equivalence. And these are when two things are equated as in their meanings being equivalent. And yet they possibly aren't. And we say that means we talk about that under linguistic presuppositions. Number five is presuppositions. And... We know that their linguistic equivalence are assumptions. We could say that you're learning many things as an example of presuppositions. Number six are universal quantifiers, and that's a set of words which has no referential index and is a universal generalization. So for those are the words where which are like everything, everyone, all. Number seven, modal operators. These are words that imply possibility and necessity, which form the rules in our life. They form the rules in our life that we can learn. And as an example, modal, op modal operators that you can learn, what an operator includes words like should, shouldn't, must, have to, can and possible. Number eight are nominalizations. And nominalization, as we've just said in the last section, is a process word which includes the verbs which are being frozen in time and making them into nouns. And presenting you with new considerations and new solutions is an example of nominalizations. Number nine, unspecified verbs. Well, an unspecified verb or an adverb modifier doesn't specify the verb. So we say, and you know. We wouldn't say, how you know. We wouldn't say that you can have new understandings or how you'd have no understandings. Number 10, a tag questions and a closed question added after a statement designed to displace resistance. Now tag questions are useful and in selling they're called tie downs. I've agree, I agree, I've used tag questions for a while and 
haven't you? You may have heard me use tag questions before and I'll probably continue to use them, won't I? <laughs> okay, so number 10, lack of referential index. And this is a phrase which has a lack of referent of lack of referential index and it doesn't pick out a specific portion of the listener's experience so an example of that would be and enjoy every moment of it comparative deletion is an unspecified comparison where the comparison is made and it's not specified as to what or whom it was made words like more or less Best, worst, least. Those are all comparative deletions and also unspecified deletions include things like clearly and obviously. So clearly it's the best way to go. And an example here is also it's more or less the right thing to do. <laughs> so number 13, and we're pacing the client's current experience where the client's verifiable external experience is described in a way which is undeniable. So, for example, you sit here listening to me, looking at me, and if you're looking at me, and if you are, good job, you're hallucinating nicely. Number 14 is your double bind. That's where the client is given two choices, both of which are preferable or desired, usually separated by an or. So here's a conscious-unconscious double bind. We drop in a phonological ambiguity first, just define and say... And that means your, your unconscious mind is also here and can hear what I say. And since that's the case, you're probably learning about this and already know more at an unconscious level than you think you did. So it's not right for me to tell you to learn this or wonder that learned in any way you want, in any order. And that's an conscious, unconscious double bind. Number 15, we have a conversational postulate where communication is the form of a question. A question to which the responses are either yes or no. So if I want you to do something, the question is what else must be present so that you'll do it? And you'll do it outside of your awareness, which allows you to choose to respond or not. And you can avoid authoritarian words for this. For example, if, you're, if you've got a child and you say, hey, shut the door. And if it was a teenager, for example, then you'd say, hey, shut the door, and the kid would just go mad. You could say, can you shut the door? And they shut the door. And of course, if you've got that teenager, the teenager will say yes and walk through the door and leave it open. <laughs> Number 16, extended quotes. And this is where quotes are extended beyond what is normally used, and that displaces resistance. And extended quotes might be like, for example, last week I was with a client who told me how easy it is to just sit back, relax and listen when you talk to someone who says, and then you go on and on like that, right? Number 17 is a selectional restriction violation. And a selectional restriction violation is a sentence that's not well formed. For example, a chair can have feelings. Or remember the walls have ears. One of my favourites is, you know that pen that you've been taking notes with all along? How much more does it know than you know? Mm. It's got a lot of knowledge, that pen. 
Okay, number 18 are ambiguities. And we put a whole bunch of ambiguities here under number 18. Phonological ambiguity, where two words with different meanings sound the same as it is. Nose and nose, right and right. Two and two, here and here. And you'll have to know what the spellings are for that. Yeah, right here. Here I'm saying syntactic ambiguities, where the function or the syntax of a word cannot be immediately determined from the immediate context. Stolen painting found by tree. Police help dog bite victim. Hypnotising hypnotist can be tricky. A lot of syntactic ambiguity and those are no statements. A lot of syntactic syn a lot of syntax syntactic ambiguity. And those questions are no statements. The scope ambiguity word cannot be determined by linguistic context. How much is applied to that sentence by some other portion of the sentence? For example, speaking to you as a child, who's speaking to the child? Am I speaking to you as a child or am I, as the child, speaking to the old men and women now that other women old or not? The, ma the man-eating fish and the... Weight of your hands and feet here, for example. And then punctuation ambiguity, where the, either punctuation is eliminated, as in the run on a sentence, or the pauses occur in the wrong place. For example, I notice you're wearing a watch carefully at what I'm doing, is an example of a run on sentence. Ah, you can also not finish sentences which is a real ambiguous punctuation. And a lot of times people don't finish. Actually, you know, I don't know if you know someone who can go on and on and then not quite finish a certain, because they have other thoughts that come on too quickly. And then sometimes they, they just run around and they say, we know I've got to tell you about, but, but first of all, let me tell you when, you know, and they go on and on like that. And they don't ever fi finish a certain, Okay, so finally, utilisation. Remembering to utilise everything that happens, everything that the client said and what they say. And I don't understand. And you could say, well, that's right. You don't understand yet because you haven't asked me the one question that will allow everything to fall into place. Now, the thing about the Milton model is it's something that happens at the unconscious level. The Milton model is not something that you can do consciously. It's something that you have to be unconscious about. And I'm not suggesting that you're unconscious about it. What I'm suggesting is your unconscious is the part of you that has to do something about it. Now, you may wonder, and I suppose that you could wonder as much as you want to wonder. And you could wonder from idea to idea, wondering around about how many ideas you could come up with. Because that means that you're beginning to think at the unconscious level. And of course, you've thought at the unconscious level all along. You haven't thought consciously necessarily about all those things, nor have you thought necessarily unconsciously about all those things, but all the times that you think that you can learn certain things, your unconscious probably has already learned them and your unconscious may have learned them before you learn them consciously, providing you with new insights, new things that you've learned, new understandings, and you have. You have, haven't you, in the past? And I'm sure and one can learn certain things without thinking much about it because 
Many times we've learned more or less differently. And each time we learn the difference between knowing exactly the right word to use at the unconscious level. Now you're listening to me, listen to the sound of my voice and you probably have your earphones on very well, either loosely or not. And on top of your hand over your ears and you're listening carefully or you may have me on speaker but you can actually hear what I'm saying clearly. And it's not just your conscious mind listening because your unconscious mind can hear, hear what I say and while it's here, while you're here listening to everything that I said. Milton Erickson used to say to the client, when he comes into the room, brings with him both his conscious mind and unconscious mind. And he said, I always know that when I'm talking to a client consciously, I'm also talking to a client's unconscious mind. And you can learn those things at the unconscious level without even having to think consciously about them. You may know already more than you think about language because your unconscious mind has heard all this all along. You've heard language your whole life and now we're simply giving it some form or some structure. Giving it some structure that will allow you to do this easily and effortlessly. Be able to utilise this in many ways that you hadn't even thought possible. Perhaps you hadn't even thought of feeling the feeling of your feet beneath the floor, feeling those things that you need to feel to know you understand what you're doing. Because in the past, and Dr. Erickson said, a chair can have feelings. And how would you like that? So that's just a little example of how one might use the Milton model to chat. Have a little talk with someone. Now the Milton model is fun and here's how I think that it would be best if you had the time to do this. Early on I did two things. One of the things I did was I took the Milton model pages and I copied them. And I took those pages and made copies of them and put them in my pocket, folded them up, carried them with me for a while. And that's what I did, carried them with me. I would take them out at night and I'd read them and I'd read them over and over again. And I'll tell you that there's no substitution. There's no substitution for being able to take and really spend the time that you need to spend with these language patterns. Every moment that you spend with the language patterns will surely be repaid in terms of your ability to use language in ways that are different, which are exciting, in ways which that cause people to be able to make changes at the unconscious level. Use your Milton model patterns, learn them. And what we'll do in training is we'll share some of our Milton model patterns. So here's what I would do. I'd start a notebook. If I read it, uh, it only needs to be 30, 20, 30 pages. Exactly. Take a, take, take a notebook to the top of each page of the notebook. Put a different language pattern. At the top of page one, put mind read. Top of page two, loss performative. And at the top of page three, put cause and effect, etc. And then start making yourself a little diary. A little list of language patterns because one day you'll be walking along and one day something will come out of your mouth and it won't be something you've heard before. It will be something that you've never thought of necessarily, but it will be something that is absolutely magnificent from the point of view of the language. And if you write it down, that means you'll be able to use it again. You'll be able to capture it and use it again when you need it. And sometime in the future... Language is an incredibly rich way of being able to communicate and I just love it. And when we see you in training, I hope to share more of that with you. 
so you'll be able to really, really experience the fun that exists within the Milton model. So let's move on to metaphors and metaphors are fun. Metaphors are simply about stories and I think they're simply telling stories and I think metaphors, when you're telling those stories, if you're into metaphors, I think they're about telling some really great stories. So metaphor design, if we have a look at metaphor design, it's on page 53. So let's talk about metaphors and the purpose of a metaphor, purpose, the real purpose of a metaphor is to pace and lead a client's behaviour to a solution. The major points of construction of a metaphor consist of displacing the referential index, in this case the client, so from the client to a character in the story, and pacing the client's problem by establishing behaviours and events between the characters in the story that are similar to those in the, character, in the client's situation. Accessing resources for the client within the context of the story and finishing the story such that a sequence of events occurs in which the characters and the stories resolve the conflict and achieve the desired outcome. Now that entire process is very, very simple to do. Actually, this is the big picture. We're going to get more details just to learn. And let me tell you a couple of stories. So when I used to teach, I'd talk to my students in a certain way. And I often used to future pace them through a metaphor or two that allowed them to make choices about what they wanted to do in their future. And one of those stories that I used to tell, and I think it's probably a pretty good story, even today, was that I used to talk about the four prerequisites for success in life. And I wouldn't talk about it as though I'd done it. I used to talk about it as though it was a business consulting friend of mine who said this. So that dissociated it from me. And so I'd say there's four things necessary for business success. And I think this is what my friend told me. The first thing that he said was, if you really want to get somewhere, you need to have a plan. You need to have a plan of action, an idea of where it is that you're going. The second thing for success is that you need to have, you need to have some sort of feedback mechanism, some sort of idea of where it is that you're going so that you can test whether or not you're getting there. Steps and milestones for achievement. And with that, keep your finances in order because this will help you keep on track with your plan. And then the third thing that I'd say is I'd say he, that he said is if you're not producing the kind of results that you need to produce, you need to be willing to change now. And I'd usually talk to the students here about what they loved doing and what they wanted to do when they left school, talking through their options and what they already had and what they might need to help them to get where they wanted. And that was often outside what was expected within the educational setting. And then we finished it up with the fourth. And the fourth prerequisite for business success is if you don't know what to do, then find someone who can assist you. Find someone who can really help you be able to do that, which could be someone who has more experience and has done it already and knows the ropes. Someone who will support you fully in what you want to do. And as I told that story, it really made a major difference in my ability to produce, produce results with my students. So once they bought into the notion that feedback is a good thing, and they stopped thinking feedback was about failure and started thinking of it as a way of taking the next step. You know, major storytellers, bards and poets have been revered through all time and advertisers have always known this. And 
let's think which are the brands and products that you can remember the story of. I mean, do you remember the Nescafe blend adverts with the handsome chap flirting with the neighbour over coffee back in the 90s? We all wanted to know whether they'd ever hook up or do it. <coughs> or what about Linda Bellingham and her fictional family in the OXO adverts? These days there are no adverts before TV programmes and we want to know what the two older ladies are going to say to each other which then relates to that car. If I say, Nicole, Papa, how many of you remember the development of that story through the years? And I reckon you could probably remember the car too. Who's got it? <laughs> Talk to anyone in marketing and they'll tell you that it's all about stories, the characters, just as much as it is about the products or service. People love stories and storytellers that have, they, storytellers have been revered forever and ever. And if you can put up, if you can come up with a number of stories that are useful for yourself, either in business or in education or, th or therapy or depending on how you're going to use this, that will be so useful for you. So let's talk about how do you actually create a metaphor? Well, first of all, you want to pre-map and pre-mapping means just the stuff you do first before you begin. You want to identify the sequence of behaviour of events in question, which could range from a conflict between internal parts to a physical illness, to a problematic relationship between clients and parents or a boss or a spouse. Number two is that you want to identify the desired outcomes and choices. And this can be at any level of detail. It's important that you have an outcome to work for. So you've got to probably want to have an idea of where it is that they want to go with this. And then number three, establish what prevents them right now and how that's a problem for them. Number four, establish interests and what's important to the client so that you can utilise those interests in the story. Now we're going to do a lateral chunk to find other examples of the main theme, problem. And we're going to displace the referential index, which means you're going to map over all the nouns. So what does that mean? Well, that means you're going to take all the people, places or things that you've discovered so far, and you're going to move them to establish characters in the story and the set and the, the different objects that are around. Characters can be anything from animal. It can be rocks, forest creatures, cowboys, books, cartoon characters, fictional characters. They can be anything you choose and what you choose as characters is not important so long as you preserve the relationship between the characters. Very often you may want to use characters from well-known fairy tales in, the, in those stories but be aware to make sure that you make up your own story and not take the traditional route of the fairy tale, mainly because quite quite often there are quite devastating events within those fairy tales that occur and we, we want to keep the internal representation that the client has in a, in a more positive place and working towards a problem. Number six, we mind read the solution to the client's problem and at number seven that's where you're going to create the metaphor. To establish an isomorphism, and that's a relationship between the client's situation and behaviour and the situation and behaviours of the characters in the story. And now you want to map over all of the verbs. 
So, which are all the relationships and all the interactions? So that you can assign behavioural traits or traits such, or other things such as strategies and representational characteristics of parallel things that goes with the client's present situation. So you it's, it's almost like you copy and paste the client's situation with the story. You want to access and establish new resources in terms of characters and events in the story which can be done in the framework of a reframing or reaccessing a forgotten resource. You may choose to keep the actual content of the resource ambigu ambiguous along the lines of unconscious processes to choose the appropriate one. You could use non-secretaries and ambiguous or direct quotes to break up sequences in the stories and direct the conscious resistance. If such resistance is present and hinders the effect of the metaphor conscious, understanding, by the way, doesn't necessarily interfere with metaphorical progress, process. And then number nine, keep your resolution as ambiguous as possible to allow the client's unconscious processes to make appropriate changes. Collapse the pre-established anchors and provide a future pace if possible to check with your work. Now that's quite detailed, a really detailed way of how to do a metaphor and let's look at some ideas of how to create a metaphor and make it really, really simple. And let's look at the purpose of a metaphor. So the first thing you want to do is, when you're designing a metaphor, is you want to get the presenting problem. And on the right hand side, at the end results, the solution to the problem. And when you get the presenting problem and the solutions, you then want to ask yourself, what is the present problem an example of? What is the presenting problem? You could also ask yourself, what do they like or what do they think is important? And ask yourself, what's another example of that? Then you could create a metaphor out of that as you bring the metaphor back down to the solution to the problem. You want to make sure where you see where the words bypass the critical faculty. You want to make sure there's no conscious connection between the metaphor and the solution. So here's an example, and this is one directly out of Ericsson. So one time he had a client come to him. The client's problem was that he was overeating. He was eating just too much, and Ericsson told him a series of stories that were nothing, absolutely nothing about his overeating. And one of the stories sticks in my mind because it was really interesting. And he talked about planting a garden. And he said, you know, out the back this year, I planted a garden. And in my garden, I planted some tomatoes. Now, it might surprise you, but tomatoes are really interesting plants, he said. Because all I've been doing is I've been watering them every day. And I've been, well, I've put some fertiliser down and then planted the tomato plants in the ground. And the tomato plants seem to know how to grow they don't need much instruction from me they know how much water to take in and they take in exactly the right, right amount of water they do take in a lot of water and they take in nutrients from the soil they seem to take in the proper amount of nutrients so that the tomatoes become the right size and Ericsson went on and on and on and talked about tomato plants and how they knew exactly the right size to be and how there wasn't a tomato plant that was really overly plump or any tomatoes that were really over small. Because he said inside the tomato there was an intelligence and a certain intelligence that would cause a tomato to be exactly the right size. 
and it should be that type of tomato. Now what a great metaphor. He constructed the metaphor simply out of the work that he'd been doing in his garden and it sounds like all was talking about a garden and I know the fellow who left him may even have walked away going, what did he sit there all the time and talk about his garden tomatoes for? But the fact is, when this chap got home, according to the write-up in the collected works of um, Milton Erickson, um, the guy got home, all of a sudden started eating properly and lo and behold, he started eating correctly. And he lost weight, and all because Erickson was simply talking about his tomato plants. So the metaphor, what are we looking at? Back to our notes, presenting the problem was, was he overeating? The solution was he didn't want to overeat. So what's an example of that? What's the goal? What's the person interested in? Well, the guy did do gardening. Actually, he knew about gardening and Erickson, who also had his own garden. So Erickson simply talking about his garden and the things that he grew in his garden and how those things grew in his garden, knew how to weigh the right weight. And it was a very simple little metaphor. And the truth is no conscious connection, except, of course, the guy could have paid attention to it, could have said, oh, yeah, I understand what you're doing, Dr. Erickson. You're trying to get me to notice that my body can take in the right amount of nutrients and forget the rest. And that's also true. See, Dr. Erickson was very effective at that. So let's summarise. In terms of making metaphors work, identify the behaviour, event or problem. Identify the desired outcomes and choices, what prevents them, and how is that a problem? What interest does the client have? And then we're going to lateral chunk to find another problem like it. Solution, create the metaphor. So ask yourself, what prevents you remembering what's important to the client? What's this an example of? What, what interest or value to you? What's important to you? Then the metaphor is going to bridge the gap to new resources. Very, very simple procedure. And just remembering to sort of map it over and keep some relationship consistent so that the unconscious mind picks up and utilises. So when you write metaphors for your partner as yourself, it's if it's pure and it's if it's pure and if it's congruent, if it's pure and if it's congruent, it's helpful. When you're excited about the metaphor that you're building, it's also important that somewhere in the story you make sure that they're associated with it. So we're going to spend more time on metaphors when you come to training and when you join us, we'll actually go over it and we'll see how to construct a metaphor specifically for the process of working on a prevent, presenting problem or working on something as if we have a presenting problem. So make sure when you create your metaphors that it's yours. Do you own it? It's got to be purely from you. It's also got to be congruent with what you're doing and, and also with your client. Include some passion. Be excited about it. Bring life and associate yourself with it. And that's how you make metaphors work.